<clears throat> Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we'll read through the end of the book. Hear God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you, well, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I understand that in order to live up to all that is expected of me as a father and a preacher, I must begin using my children as sermon illustration. Sent to my cell phone of Isla sobbing hysterically surrounded by an army of geese. Isla's reaction was not what Mariana was planning on. It was a very hard video to watch. Maybe you've had experiences like these, or not quite like that. Maybe something more serious, where something took place and you were surprised by how someone reacted. You expected them to be happy, but they were disappointed. You expected them to be upset, but they were actually kind of relieved or thankful. I think we spouses see this a lot, if we're honest, in the home. We expect sometimes that our spouses will react in one way, and then they surprise us. The Lord sanctifies us. Um... We continue to learn more about each other. Now picture Jonah, though, outside of the city of Nineveh that has just repented of their sins and believed in God. If you haven't been with us, we've been preaching through the book of Jonah. So we've gone through the first three chapters already. Uh, we've seen a lot of surprises. But I think the Lord has left this biggest surprise for us in the final chapter. Bigger than a prophet running from his own God. Bigger than the sea storm, bigger than the fish, bigger than Nineveh repenting. The greatest surprise in the book of Jonah is Jonah's own reaction to everything that has happened on this roller coaster of a book. I've tried to give you a sober picture of the book of Jonah, that this isn't so much a kid's story as we've been taught, 
but it's more about the presence of God, sin, rebellion, the battle of the wills, and ultimately how complicated the Christian life can be even for those who truly love the Lord. We are surrounded by the inescapable presence of God. Jonah ran from the presence of God. He found fear in the presence of God. He praised in the presence of God in the belly of the fish. He preached to Nineveh in the presence of God. And now he finds himself depressed in the presence of God. Things did not go how he thought they would go. Surely that's happened to some of us in this room. Things did not go how you thought they would go. He is struggling to make sense of his own existence under God's authority even while recognizing and confessing God's goodness in his prayers. We are truly complicated creatures. Thankfully, the Lord is a gracious God and merciful, abounding in steadfast love toward us, even when we are overcome by waves of anger and bitterness and self-loathing. The Lord loves us when we don't love ourselves. The Lord loves us when we are unlovable. And though this chapter seems like a strange ending to the book, its message is so important for us today. We just sang sin and despair like the sea waves cold. Threaten the soul with infinite loss. Is that not a picture of what Jonah is experiencing? But then grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge the mighty cross. When we are held captive by despair and it would threaten our very lives, we look to the generous pity of the Lord and we find refuge. That's what this chapter is all about. Three headings to help us work through it. Disillusionment, depression, and pity. Disillusionment, depression, and pity. So we're just going to walk right through the text uh, beginning in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. If you read the book of Jonah, as we've done, you can follow the flow of thought based on the actions uh, of the, the, the actor. So, God does this, Jonah does this. God does this, Jonah does this. God does this. That's kind of how the book is structured. So, what happened in Jonah chapter 3? Well, first, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God did something. God acted in his sovereign will, employing Jonah to prophetically speak against the city of Nineveh. Then, what did Jonah do? Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And he preached to them. The entire city repented and believed in God from the greatest to the least. Even the king believed and was repentant and called for a public fast, a corporate fast over the whole city, hoping that the Lord would turn from his fierce anger. And then, after Jonah preached, what did God do? God did turn from his fierce anger. He relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, chapter 4 begins telling us what Jonah did. God did, Jonah did, God did, Jonah did, God did. Now Jonah in chapter 4. It's, it's kind of like this whole book is a game of tug of war. God over here and Jonah over here, and they're just fighting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. 
We've seen clearly that Jonah is kind of a wild card, but we're never prepared for this next move. This one takes the cake, I think. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The Lord literally just worked the greatest revival in all of human history in one of Earth's most wicked cities to date, and thousands of souls are now turning to worship Yahweh. And Jonah's angry about it. Jesus said in the parable of the lost sheep that even when one lost sinner is recovered, there is more joy in heaven over that one sheep than the 99 righteous persons. So imagine what's going on in heaven, knowing that more than 120,000 people made in the image of God who do not know their right hand from their left are now repenting and believing in God. What's happening in heaven? They're having a hoopla, right? It's a good day. But it displeased Jonah. There are a lot of things to be disappointed about in life, a lot of things to be upset about. This is not one of them, right? Something is severely wrong in Jonah's heart. To help us figure this out, let's remind ourselves what's been Jonah's main issue throughout the whole book. He is coming to terms with the fact that God is God and he is not. That's kind of what the book's all about, right? God's will trumps Jonah's will. And God's will, much like God's presence, is inescapable. So what do we do when we don't get our own way? Well, again, you can ask my two-year-old. We pout. When we don't get our own way, we seethe. We throw tantrums. We do whatever we, we realize. We can't control this situation, so we do with what we can control. We make a scene. We blow things out of proportion. We turn to things like anger bitterness, and self-loathing. We go down a path of emotional ruin motivated by a selfish and unhealthy desire for control. Jonah wasn't angry at the core. The anger was a symptom of whatever was going on in his heart. Jonah was disillusioned to the reality of living under God's authority. And he's still struggling to live in the presence of God after all that he's experienced. In these four chapters. Maybe you know somebody who's just angry all the time. Y'all know somebody like that? Maybe you are someone like that. I don't know. And sometimes I think people legit have anger problems, right? That's a real thing. But I think most of the time, angry people are really just sad that things didn't turn out how they thought it would. And anger is just the symptom, right? If that is you or someone you know, the Lord has counsel for us this morning that we'll see in a minute. What does Jonah do in his anger? Surprisingly, Jonah turns to pray in the second verse. His, his prayer is nothing like the prayer from the belly of the fish in chapter 2. This is a totally different prayer. It's not a prayer of praise, but a prayer of complaining. And listen, it's, it's never justifiable. It's, there's never a good time or a reason to be angry with God. He can be justifiably angry at us, right? But we don't really have any reason to be angry with him, justifiably, right? Objectively speaking. But Jonah picks a fight with God here. And I think, though, 
even though it's not good to fight the Lord, I do believe it was better for Jonah to pray like this than to not pray at all. Many of us, when we're angry, right, we, we just we don't want nothing to do with him. At least he's praying. It's a prayer of severe complaining, but at least he is praying. Praying. He's not running away this time. He's at least learned better than that. And so we should pray as well wherever we're at and however we feel. The cool thing about the Lord is that He hears our good prayers and He hears our bad prayers. Do you know that? He hears our good prayers and He hears our bad prayers. And that's because, as we'll see in this chapter, He is incredibly patient. Incredibly patient with us. But here's how Jonah's prayer goes. I knew it. I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. You always do this. Sounds like he's having a fight with his wife, right? You always do this stuff. I knew it. This is why I didn't want to go. This is why I went to Tarshish, because I knew how you are. I knew it. And we didn't know, by the way, this is the first time we're finding out why he ran from the Lord, even though we kind of figured it out along the way. He says, this is why I didn't go. Because I knew how you are. I didn't want to go to Nineveh because I knew you would forgive them. I knew you were a gracious and merciful God. I knew you would be slow to anger. I'm angry because you're so patient. I'm angry because you're so loving. I'm angry because you're so forgiving. One thing we need to notice about Jonah's prayer here is that he is spot on in describing the Lord. He's spot on, right? This is the language that God constantly uses to reveal himself throughout the Old Testament. We read in uh, Exodus chapter 34. This is the covenantal language between God and his people. Jonah's right about who the Lord is. You can even say Jonah has good theology here. I mean, he's a prophet. For crying out loud. He knew the Lord. He knew the scriptures. But wherever we have good theology that has not been properly applied to our worldview, to our character, and to our behavior, we cut ourselves off from actually enjoying the God that we know. He knows the Lord and yet has no joy in the Lord. There was a great disconnect between his knowledge about God and being able to enjoy God. We can have good theology and sound doctrine, and yet we can be angry at God. We can be obsessed with getting our biblical hermeneutic correct, and yet we can miss the God that we are studying altogether. Jonah's prayer might sound silly to some of us, even as I was, you know, saying that just now. But how many of us are guilty of doing this functionally, right? Like, what good is explaining your view of the millennial reign of Christ if you don't love the Lord Jesus' appearing? What's the point of explaining the eternal nature of the Trinitarian Godhead if you don't give your life as a living sacrifice of worship. 
Why would we study Greek and Hebrew if we don't even delight in the voice of the Lord speaking into our daily lives, pouring out wisdom and grace from the heavens? Knowing God accurately ought to lead to worshiping the Lord fully. And Jonah has fully missed it. Instead of worship, Jonah wants to give the Lord the opposite. He doesn't want to give his life in worship. He would rather take his life away from God. I'm not giving you nothing. I'd rather die than worship. Which is why he says next in verse 3, It is better for me to die than to live. Which is almost like the opposite of worship, isn't it? You know, David prays in the Psalms, If I go down to the dust, who's going to praise you in the dust, right? Like, this is the opposite of praise, to, to not have life. So it takes a pretty dark turn here, and really this is the first of three times that Jonah mentions taking his own life in this chapter. Verse 3, verse 8, and verse 9. And I don't want to meditate on this too deeply for a Sunday sermon, but I do believe this is God's word for us. We should recognize what it's saying here. It is not good to take your own life. It's not good to take your own life. It is never a good decision. And that desire is never a good desire. It comes from a place of severe loss, disillusionment, not knowing where you belong or how you fit into this world. It is a search for the final escape from pain and disappointment. Some of us may question how people can have thoughts like this, how they can possibly want to take their own lives. And meanwhile, for the people who have the thoughts, they can't not. It's the most natural thing that they can come up with in their minds. This is because sin runs deep. It affects us in every capacity, even for those who are born again. Therefore, unfortunately, these kinds of thoughts are not uncommon among all kinds of people. You know, you can read the stats and loneliness and what's happened since COVID and how, how just sad the world is. And I don't have all those stats, you know, and I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a Debbie Downer with all those thoughts right now. But I will say, if you have these kinds of thoughts, don't follow through. I think more people have them than we realize. If there's anybody here today that's had these thoughts recently or even years ago, don't follow through. It's not good. Tell someone what you're going through. You're not alone. Even prophets of God have had thoughts like these. And if you have thoughts like these, consider the Lord's love and patience with Jonah. The Lord heard Jonah's prayer. He hears your prayers. The Lord answered Jonah's prayers. He will answer your prayers. We don't know why God does some of the things he does, and some of the things he does we will never understand. But anger will not give us the answers we desire, and neither will taking our own lives. The Lord says so patiently and compassionately to Jonah in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? You know, we read that, and have you ever told an angry person to stop being angry? Has that ever worked? 
right? That's not what the Lord's doing here. Stop being angry, right? That, that would make me more angry, right? That's, the Lord is asking this open-ended question of reflection. How's it going? How's this working? How's this working out? Tell me more. You're almost like a therapist, right? How do you feel about that? How does that make you feel? The Lord is calling Jonah to search out his own heart to find the source of the turmoil within. Is that anger making you feel better? What are you really angry about? How patient is the Lord with us, beloved? Instead of judging us as our sins deserve, He asks a heart-searching question to show us His truth in the most kind and gentle way. It's not that God is asking these things because He doesn't know the answers. The questions are not for God. The questions are for us. When we see questions from the Lord in Scripture, learn to see them through the lens of patience and kindness rather than judgment. Let me just read a few questions from the Bible that you're probably familiar with. The very first one, I think, in the very, in the very beginning of the Bible, the Lord says to Adam and Eve, Where are you? He didn't have to say that. Where are you? Here's a few others. Whom would you compare to me that I should be like him? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Why will you die in your sin? The Lord said to Job repeatedly, Where were you when I did everything? Where were you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Who do you say that I am? Do you do well to be angry? We learn from the book of James that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And unfortunately, as Jonah sinks deeper into his sin, he does not produce righteousness, but a dangerous depression. Let's keep reading. After verse 4, um, Jonah, verse 5, Jonah goes out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. I think this passage confuses a lot of us, and we think, you know, this is just a weird ending, right? Why does the book end this way? We get, what, like, what's the plant and the worm and the sun? Like, what, what's, what's going on with all this stuff? I, I hope to show you it's less confusing than we make it out to be. 
Uh, first, we notice the context. Where did Jonah go? He went outside the city. Revival and repentance takes off like a wildfire in Nineveh. Jonah's just like, peace out, right? I'm gone. I don't want any part of this. He's the guy who started the thing, right? And he's leaving. You, you might even think they'd be like, yo, tell us more. We want you to stay. But he, he checked out. He went outside the city. He'd rather sit in the desert by himself. So he made a booth, and he just is seething in his anger, watching what would become of the city. Jonah's anger led him to isolate himself. He doesn't want to see any Ninevites. He doesn't want to see any Hebrews. He just wants to sit in his tent and be alone. But he still watches from a distance, right? He's hoping that just maybe, maybe God will burn them all up after all. Right? And this is proof that Jonah's not living in the real world. He's still living in this false world that he's created for himself. Jonah's anger has led him to the decision to isolate himself, and then his isolation has brought him further into this pit of disillusionment. He's living in his own world, hoping for a destruction that God would not bring, and all the while, his self-centered desire for Nineveh to perish was actually keeping him from living life in the real world and embracing the gracious providence of God. He had forgotten so quickly that the God who spared Nineveh was the same God who spared him in the belly of the fish. Right? It's okay for God to save him, but not the Ninevites. I just want to warn you guys of what happens after anger doesn't scratch that itch for you. Here's the downward spiral that we go into. We tend to isolate ourselves, we stoke the fire of our sin, and we refuse to face reality. Jonah is spiraling deeper and deeper into what I believe is a spiritual depression. The more that we isolate ourselves from godly counsel or from the Lord's tender care, the more we lose touch from reality. I believe this is one reason God has given us the gift of the local church. I think I've found a way to preach on the local church through every chapter the book of Jonah. So why don't we finish strong doing that again, right? Isn't this the purpose of the church? Isn't this why we don't neglect to meet together? as is the habit of some, but gather together to stir one another up to love and good works as the day draws near. I believe that the majority of people who keep their distance from the local church are actually deeply depressed. The majority, not everybody, right? But I think the majority of folks who want nothing to do, who withdraw from the church, are depressed. Listen, I know what it's like to be introverted, okay? There's a difference between introversion and depression. But who is speaking the truth to people outside the church? Who is reminding them of the character of God? Who is pointing them to the scriptures and to the cross? Who is helping them live in the real world under the presence and authority of God? And the results will be the same every time when we isolate ourselves. We lose touch with reality. If you're afraid to invite someone to church, I can assure you that it's very likely the person you are talking to is actually terribly lonely. And they are created in the image of God, hardwired to desire community. And they're starving for it, whether they'll admit it or not. And so you have something they want. Be bold. 
be what they need. Give them truth. Give them community. Give them friendship. Give them relationship. Because you've been there, haven't you? Haven't you lived life on the outside before? Tell them what the church has done for your soul. Tell them how you found hope when the sorrows ran over you. Another part of this depression, though, was that Jonah wasn't able to move forward with his reality. He, he told himself in his own prayer that God was gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love. He knew what God was like, but he was not able to accept it. He was stuck. He can't go back. He can't go forward. So he's just sitting there in this unhappy state of existing until he can come to grips with God's character and live in the world as the creature God made him to be. Many of us get stuck as well. Some of y'all might be stuck right now. Can't go back and change what happened. You can't go forward either. You're just living. How many people have you, stories have you heard from people, you know, they, they live and they tell the, this, this event that happened like 50 years ago, like it happened like it was yesterday. They've not been able to move forward from it, right? We get stuck when these things happen. They've not been able to accept what has happened and it's kept them living in a hole their entire lives. This is another symptom of spiritual depression. And friend, if that's you this morning, look to Jonah. Look to Jonah. I know what happened to you is awful, and I don't have a good answer for it. I can't explain a lot of things. We shouldn't try to explain a lot of things. I can't explain the Holocaust. I can't explain human trafficking. I can't explain the abuse of children. I can't explain the success of the wicked and the pain of the oppressed. All I know is that this world is sick with a curse called sin. And one day, that curse will be lifted. And all will be made new. And as far as the curse is found, God's glory will cover it. So, we can live in the constant ebb and flow of disappointments and long to go back in time and change what happened, allowing our emotions to be governed by the brokenness of the world and news and media. Or we can live in the hope of the resurrection and the glory of God, that He is still good and things will not always be this way. What will you be governed by? That's God's questions to Jonah. It's God's question to you. What will you be governed by? Jonah could have been rejoicing in the glory and goodness and patience of God if he would have taken his eyes off of what happened or what didn't happen and instead just look at the Lord. The Lord in his kindness and patience realizes Jonah's not getting it. So he gives this, this visible demonstration to turn his eyes away from his disappointments and back to the Lord. So he appoints this plant. The plant grew tall over Jonah's head and gave him shade. Nehemiah told me last week that this was a miracle all on its own. You ever seen a plant grow that fast? Right? James and the giant, uh, whatever, beanstalk? That's not, I don't know what it is. But like, what is this? This, this, this plant just grows overnight and gives him shade? And he loved the plant, but then God appointed a worm to attack the plant, and then the plant died. 
And then with the plant gone, there was no shade. And the Lord appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun came out and gave Jonah a sunburn. And so for the second time, Jonah asks again that he might die rather than live. Now I think it's tempting for us to try to match this up like a puzzle. This is some kind of symbol we got to work out here, okay? The plant must be Nineveh, and over here the worm has got to be Jonah or something, and then the sun, that must be God's judgment. Like we're, we're trying to figure out, what does this mean? I don't think it really means anything. <laughs> I, I think the whole event is the symbol that is opening Jonah's eyes to the reality of who God is. The symbol is tied up into the whole event. The Lord gives the meaning in the next few verses that shows us the legitimacy of God's pity toward Nineveh and also exposes the illegitimacy of Jonah's anger. But before we get there, this event teaches us more about Jonah's heart. He's seething in his tent. Verse 1 said that he was exceedingly displeased and angry. And then now in verse 6, he's exceedingly glad. That's a play on words. How'd that happen? How'd he go from hot and cold so fast, right? He had shade from a tree. All of a sudden, he's happy. He's the happiest guy on earth, right? Jonah's pleasure was not tied up in truth or in the glory of God. His pleasure was tied up in his circumstances, right? His circumstances changed, so he went from angry to happy. He lived self-centered. He's angry that Nineveh gets some shade from God's wrath, but he's glad when he gets some shade for his bald head. Is your joy based on circumstances? Or is your joy based on God who never changes? This idea is firmed up in Jonah's response to the plant dying and getting, you know, sunburn. And listen, I don't like getting sunburned. You know, I'm as, y'all know, I, uh, I'm pretty pale, right? It don't take much. Don't take much. But after the scorching wind and the sun that God sent, Jonah again asks that he might die rather than live. His happiness is so tied up in his circumstances, he'd rather die than be uncomfortable. Right? He, he can't see past the end of his nose. Hidden beneath the hard shell of depression is an anxious pride that really still wants to be God. Jonah wants to appoint shade trees. Jonah wants to appoint worms. Jonah wants to appoint the scorching winds. But if the Lord is sovereign and he's not, he's basically saying, I would rather die than you be God and not me. And can I remind y'all real quick, Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. Like this guy is supposed to be holy. And here, here he's pouting in a tent because of a dead tree and a sunburn. I love the authenticity of the Bible. These are not happy fairy tale stories. Jonah wanted to take his own life because he was depressed. And the primary source of his depression was his idolatry. And yet he was still in the Lord's chosen will to preach to Nineveh and to do the Lord's work. The Bible does not paint a rose-colored picture for us of what it looks like to live in this body of flesh and simultaneously in the presence of God. It can be extremely complicated. This should give you some encouragement this morning because I'm guessing that sometimes your spiritual life is also complicated. I hope you see it that way. 
Because you'll be disappointed when complications come. When we get converted, we draw a straight line from grace to heaven, right? That's our path. Sanctification is following this easy, straight line. There we go. And then the Lord just throws in as many curves as you could possibly imagine. Because it's not that simple. We realize the Holy Spirit is in charge of this thing. Not us. This is real life. And if things get complicated, don't give up. The Lord's doing something. The Lord is still at work. And He will complete in you what He began, no matter how difficult the road becomes. The last few verses reiterate the heart of the Lord contrasted with Jonah's selfishness. Selfishness, And then we'll be done and we'll take the supper. Pity is this last point. The Lord's back to asking his questions. In verse 9 he says, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. First, the Lord asked if his anger was justifiable. Do you do well to be angry with Nineveh? Now, and, and Jonah didn't give a response there, by the way. We didn't get anything from Jonah. He just left the city and sat in his tent, right? The Lord asked his follow-up question. He says, do you... Do well to be angry for the plant. It was here and gone overnight. It's lifeless, has no soul. You do well to be angry for that. And he says now for a third time, so angry I could die about it. So angry I could die about it. But the Lord said to Jonah, Jonah, you pity this plant that you didn't grow. It was here and it was gone. Should I not pity Nineveh? Because the Lord did create them. Jonah didn't create the plant. God created the people in Nineveh. God labored for the people in Nineveh. Jonah feels pity for nothing. Should the Lord not express pity for something far more valuable than a tree? And the book ends with this thought-provoking, patient question from the Lord. Should I not pity these 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and much cattle? How would you answer that question? You know, I think we want a Jonah chapter 5. But we don't get it because we're just supposed to be left with this. Where's your pity? Do you see the pity of God? Do you do well to be angry? About all the stuff that makes you angry? All the silly stuff that we care about? While the Lord is caring about things infinitely more valuable all the time. How do you answer that question?
So we'll finish the book of Jonah with questions for us to consider as a church. What kind of church will we be? Will we have a temporal perspective of the world or an eternal perspective of the world? Jonah's perspective couldn't see past a plant that gave him shade. God's perspective saw thousands of sinners who were doomed to hell if they did not repent. Jonah saw the opportunity for momentary comfort. The Lord saw the opportunity for eternal souls to be rescued for the glory of his name throughout all of eternity. What perspective will we have as a church? Will we be self-absorbed? Will we care about our little kingdom here? Stay comfortable and try not to get sunburned? Or will we strive for the kind of fruit that is eternal? 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. A second question. Will we be an angry church? Or will we be a merciful church? Angry or merciful? Will we fight and fuss when things don't go our way? Will we grumble in our tents like Israel? Or will we follow the Lord's own example and be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Will we see the Lord's will as greater than our own will? Will we be governed by all the little spurts of unjustifiable anger that we experience throughout a day? Like stubbed toes? Or lazy co-workers? Or things that just didn't go the way we wanted them to? While the Lord, again, has a billion of things, billions of things He is justified, could be justifiably angry about, but instead chooses patience and mercy with us instead. He has actual reasons to be angry. We, we really don't have a lot. We read James chapter 3. James 1 says, If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Final question. Will you see all our fellow man as people made in the image of God, infinitely valuable, or will you see them as a problem? Will you see mankind as infinitely valuable, made in the image of God, or will we see them as a problem? The Ninevites were Gentiles. They were so backwards that they didn't know their right hand from their left, which means they thought evil was good and good was evil, right? Even though their wickedness came up before the face of God and fueled his holy anger, God still took pity on them. Was Jonah any better than the Ninevites? Are we any more valuable as far as our eternal soul goes and God's perspective than any other man? What is man that we're mi he's mindful of us at all? The Lord is so compassionate and merciful that He gave the blood of His Son for people who don't know their right hand from their left. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, loving only good, hating only evil. 
to save the very people who got it completely wrong. Colossians 1 says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in minds, you, you, alienated and hostile in minds, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friend, if you're here today and you think you're too dirty or too messed up for God to save, you're absolutely wrong. If you think you're too dirty, too undeserving for the table that we're about to partake of, again, wrong. Because God has made sinners to be holy and blameless and above reproach by the blood of His Son. The Lord stands ready to save even you, because His grace really is greater than all our sins. So come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. What kind of church will we be? Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.